brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. All right, welcome to Soft Rep Radio. I am your host, Rad. I have the total awesome pleasure of having a sit-down chat and interview with Dr. Robert Adams, surgeon, doctor, Navy SEAL, commander, Delta Force, airborne, probably a good swimmer. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, sir. And don't forget, author of my wonderful three books, including the book on Hellwick, which we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, what a great segue right there. So last week I talked with Jake Zwig, who is a, one of the SEALs, and we were talking about how you're supposed to lean on your instructors. They're going to take care of you to the edge of death. And he's like, they're going to push you. And then all of a sudden we had this hell week happen, right? And he's like, they're going to push you to the end and see if yeah. you come back from that. And what's your thoughts on what just happened at Bud's today with those candidates? Well, it's a unfortunate, obviously, one dead and one in the hospital but it's it's a very, very unusual experience for the SEAL Training Command, as well monitored as it is, to have a death. The first time there was a death during Hell Week, I was actually an Army doctor in Fort Bragg and was brought out through a friend of a friend to uh, look at the death that happened during Hell Week, during the winter Hell Week, by the way. But we were able quickly to determine that that was due to the gentlemen taking supplements, creatine and ephedrine, bodybuilding supplements that are extremely dangerous in endurance athletics. And he actually ended up coughing up frothy blood, going to congestive heart failure and dying. Well, and my visit at the time, one-star Admiral Eric Olson, and I, he looked at me and said, hey, doc, what do I do? And I said, you ban all supplements from SEAL training, sir, but that's your call. And a week later, and ever since all supplements have been banned. You can't go to Mexico to get steroid shots or illegal under-the-counter anything, or it's an immediate dismissal, and the medical community follows everybody very carefully. Now, that I've said that, I know these guys were well-monitored. I know what a winter hell week was because in my book, Six Days of Impossible, I describe my and my classmates' winter hell week, and it's you know, six days, no sleep, soaking wet, freezing cold, shivering uncontrollable the entire time. And people go, what? That's impossible. I know that's why my book's called Six Days of Impossible. But, you know, we all survived it. Nobody even came close to dying. We hallucinated. We lost whole periods of our days and weeks. Some people don't remember Hell Week at all. But there were no death. And there's been a winter Hell Week. Beyond hypothermia, I'd imagine, right? Well, there is a managed level of hypothermia, yes. Our body temperatures were checked, even with rectal thermometers, just bless their little hearts. <laughs> and we noticed that body temperatures got below 90. So we were you know, running around with core body temperatures 89. You know, you'd get so cold, you'd stop shivering. But nowadays, this was some time ago, and nowadays they're much more careful. They know what the hypothermia limits are, how long you can stay in certain degrees of water. So I'm taking a long time to answer your question, and I hope you don't mind, but it's No, please, I'm listening. Because people think that Hell Week killed these men, and that's unlikely because 
It is so well monitored. And there's been a winter hell week for multiple classes every year for 30, 40, 50 years. You know, interestingly, there was a brief period of time when the success rate of people graduating from winter hell weeks was so low. And for example, my class had 70 start. We graduated 11. They said, you know, we got we got to stop having winter hell weeks. But they did. They brought them back. And, you know, as me and my classmates clearly are an example of the very best men graduate from winter hell right. class, hell week classes. Right. Like the <laughs> hardest. I'm making the, a joke. Yeah. Well, it is our, it is one of the harder, but, and, and I was just making a joke for the benefit of any of my SEAL buddies who might be listening. But so if, if hell week didn't kill him and since his death occurred the day after hell week was over and you got to understand when hell week is over, you eat, you drink, you go to bed, and you start to get your core body temperature to warm back up again. You know, we spent an hour probably in the hot shower, just letting the steam roll around us and try to get the shivering to stop. And then we went to bed, and you wake up every hour or two sweating because your body's confused that there's warm and doesn't understand your core body temperatures has been so low for so long. But it's a period of rest, recovery. It's a good time. So why would somebody suddenly die? Now, I'm a physician. I know you said, Dr. Bob, you know, command surgeon, Delta Force. Yes, all of that. And also <laughs> a military a physician for 18 years. And so I've always been fascinated and followed very closely Navy SEAL training and other special operations training, including Delta Force when I was there. And there has to be something else going on because not just one person died. If it was one person, you could say maybe congenital, maybe it'll show up in the uh, autopsy, but this is two people. And I have an opinion without proof that is based on my great unhappiness with the military chain of command that is forcing COVID shots on everybody without right. their consent in many cases. And there's been multiple reports of cardiac problems associated with these shots. You know, you have to understand that Hell Week occurs in the fourth week of training, fourth week, which means they've that only getting, been yeah. in this training area for a month or two. And shots, two of them, maybe even a booster, are mandatory currently. So what these two guys had in common were COVID shots. Draw your own conclusion. Oh, you think so? That is a commonality, right? So if there is those involved. That is the only commonality I can think of. And they're just pushing themselves to the extremes after they got that, huh? Well, I mean, everybody got a shot probably because the yeah. Navy makes it mandatory. Yeah. And most, you know, exemptions have been denied across all the services. So when you're in a period of rest, having already survived the hard part, you're a day down. You've been sleeping. You've been eating. You've been resting. It's true. And then all of a sudden, you die. The only way a young man's going to die is cardiac arrest, congestive heart failure, heart-related as a general rule. You're not going to have a stroke. You know, it just these kinds of things don't happen to young people. And it doesn't, doesn't happen to two people at the same time. So you don't think it could have been like pre-existing conditions that mixed in with it? It's not like they had pre-existing symptoms right like you know existed prior to enlistment because buds were they 
you know, how long after they were in the Navy already, after they got like all of their inoculations, like when I was in the Air Force, we went like, what, day three and probably got all inoculated. And then the next morning it was PT, right? You know, straight to PT. Everybody's pushing themselves. A lot of guys were going down with, you know, soreness in the arms and whatnot, you know. Right. Because it takes it out of you from those initial inoculations. Well, right. And so. And you're right. They may have gotten everything at boot camp. I'm just trying to find what is something that two people that are very, very sick in a day of rest might have in common. And that, of course, could be one of them. But it's never happened before. Yeah. And it, it is a commonality. Right. I can't discredit that at all either. Yeah. They would have that in common. So, you know, it's an interesting question that I have actually ran up through the chain of command, but it's such a sensitive issue that nobody wants to publicly say, well, we're looking into it because then you got to come up with an answer. Yeah. And it's a crazy time. Now, can I ask you, are you, I got vaccinated. Are you vaccinated yourself? I did choose to do the Johnson and Johnson one shot vaccination because again, I was required to get it in order to travel to Europe on a river cruise this last fall, this few months ago. So when I, you know, you got no choice, you got to do it. I got the Johnson and Johnson also back in April. And then I got the booster in December. And then I tested positive just about two weeks ago, if you will, from my timeline. We're in like January, had multiple PCR tests in December because I was around exposure. Of course. And, you know, I didn't have any symptoms. I was asymptomatic. I was waiting every day for, the sore throat to kick in, or I would swallow in the morning, or I got mentally jacked up from thinking I had the COVID more than I think I even had the COVID. Well, it's interesting that the, the uh, CDC came out last month saying, hey, look, guys, we're really sorry, but our PCR tests can't tell the difference between multiple viral illnesses, including the flu. So when you get a positive COVID PCR test. It could yeah. be the flu or it could be any one of the other viral illnesses. Sorry about that. Should have mentioned that. That could explain why last year not a single flu case was reported worldwide. Oh, really? That's never happened in the history of the world. Yeah, right. And if you look at the back of Lysol, it does say coronavirus, you know, <laughs> free <laughs> coronavirus. You know, I'm not trying to come out there and say anything. I, I'm trying to take the necessary steps that I'm being taught, you know, like, or what the best thing to do is basing it off of you know, I'm my own president in my own world. That's me, right? I don't have to worry about like, what's, you know, that's just me. And I just want to let you know, there's a little technical difficulty with the video. So I'm not, I hear you just fine, see you just fine. So Good. I'm trying to work that on my end, uh, Bob, but uh, that is interesting to take that into consideration that they both did it, have. It's, just, it's a question. And I'm very much looking forward to the autopsy, autopsy reports, as is everybody. Yeah. But I do want to say this know. again. Helwig did not kill these men. Hellweek did not kill these men, you know, because there's been since, you know, my hell week was over 40 years ago and it was a winter week. Nobody died. And nobody's died since, except for huh. the one I told you with creatine. Yeah, right, right. Stuff. But it, no, it just doesn't happen. Hell week is harder than hell and colder than stink, but it doesn't kill people. So there's another reason and they'll find it. Yeah, they'll investigate this uh, thoroughly because, you know, you have these young men and women who give their perfect capable bodies up front yep. <laughs> and then get in the military and they get out and they're just not the same one way or another. And they trust their chain of command to take care of them. And I Correct. think in almost all cases, there is a chain of command that's trying to do just that. But 
sometimes they fail. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. And if, you know, you're created, you know, the greater guy's image, nobody's perfect. So all you can do yeah. is just strive for Sometimes perfection. that aircraft carrier runs around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd say to segue into an aircraft carrier running into the ground, let me segue into like, you're airborne, right? That's jumping out Correct. of airplanes. You you have accomplished that task. So my dad being SF and jumping out of airplanes, he had stories of maybe a bad night drop. Do you have any stories of an airborne drop that maybe went awry or that you walked away from going, how did I do that, or a buddy didn't? Oh, my God. You, we don't have enough time for me to t- answer in all the detail of all the many jumps that have uh, tried to kill me over the years because I was static line and free fall in the Navy SEALs, and I was on the Navy parachute team where we jumped, you know, the, the demonstrations, the smoke jumping off your heels while you fly into the right. into the stadiums for the football games. I had to pull my reserve parachute three times in free fall. You know, nobody wants to have to pull it, but that means your main chute has failed. And all three times it was like, oh, shoot, I came, that came out okay. I have uh, a number of Army-related parachute jumps, which Army tends to like to do static line unless to take the doctors and hook a 60-pound equipment ruck to their bodies. And, Rucksack. Yeah. So, you, so you know, you jump out of the airplane at 1,200 feet. Like, you're looking down to see if your feet are going to hit the trees when, you're, when your chute opens. But then when you, <laughs> you, when you see your get, you know, as soon as you get open chute, you drop a line attached to your ruck, and it falls down. 40 feet below you. And most of my jumps in my, you know, if I were to count, have been night jumps and into the water a lot in the SEAL teams. And if you don't, if it's dark, you don't know when the the ground's going to hit you. And so what you listen to is you listen for your ruck to hit the ground. You hear this, boom. Okay, you stand by, here we go, boom, and you hit the ground. So you got your feet together, you got a good body position, you roll. But sometimes you find a tree, sometimes you find a stump, Sometimes you find water, some, you know, some Navy show friends of mine jumping at night landed in three feet of water and drowned underneath their parachute because there wasn't supposed to be water there. And the chute came down on top of them. And that stuff happens. Right. And there was a drop out here in Utah one night. My dad and his team were being dropped on a night jump. And he said it was about like 800, 900 feet. And the C-130 was at altitude, but it was over a mountain and it was pitch black. And they didn't know the mountain had the angle going down. So when the guys jumped oh. out, they jumped at altitude, but it was the shoots were just like cigarette rolling or, or just hitting it as they broke pelvises and just, you know, a lot of different feet got broken on. These are some hardcore guys that put a lot of their life into that. For, this was a training jump. Yeah. You just triggered me on a quick doctor parachuting story. When I was at Delta... We were doing free fall parachuting, and a 45-year-old senior staff sergeant, master sergeant, pulled his free fall parachute at 120 miles an hour, which is, you know, what you're supposed to be when you pull. And he snapped, like at the end of a whip, felt pain in his hips, and was unaware that he just snapped his hip in two places, flew his parachute down to a soft landing in front of my medic, but couldn't, you know, felt the pain in his hip immediately and rolled. You know, in a free fall parachute, you should be able to land it standing up easily. Medic ran over and said, you okay? And he goes, no, nah, I'm fine, doc. You know, I, I hurt my hip, you know. Well, let me take you to the clinic. You know, Doc Adams is there waiting for you. 
no, let me just go do shoot shakeout and I'll wander over to the clinic when I'm done. Sure. And my medic, against his better judgment, let him do it. So the guy shows up in my clinic about an hour later limping and tells me the story. I go, I think you broke your hip. Let's get an x-ray. And I have one in my clinic. So I, And I made a mistake by taking an x-ray up against the wall, which we would do for certain types of x-rays, chest x-rays mostly, and took a picture of his hip and it was fine. And But I laid him back down and I did his exam and I could actually feel his hip bones moving slightly. I went, you know, I'm going to send you to the emergency room. I, think, I still think you broke your hip, even though the x-ray is good. So the guy goes, no, don't make me do that. Let me go home. And against my better judgment and his years of experience as a jumper and listening to his own body, I said, look, really bad idea. It's five o'clock, always five o'clock, end of the workday. And I know you don't want to do it. I'll let my medic drive you home and I'll let my medic bring you back in the morning and I'm going to re-examine him and send you to the emergency room. Okay, deal. So 15 minutes later, I'm putting on my jacket and walking out the door. My phone rings going, Doc, he's dead. I went, shit, excuse my French. You know, are you are, are you resuscitating him? He goes, yes, yes, yes. Hang on, hang on. I think I have heart rate back again. He had collapsed. I said, I know exactly what happened. He's busted his pelvis. He's po- torn that big blood vessel that's in the in the pubic symphysis, and he's bleeding yeah. out into his into his pelvis. I said, so call the uh, ambulance, which he did. He said, Doc, I I could hear the ambulance already coming. He says, I called you after I called the ambulance. I said, good. So he, um, make a long story short, made it to the hospital with the ambulance where they found his pelvis full of a basketball-sized blood clot blood. and yeah. were able to actually save his life that evening without surgery because the pelvis tamponades or blocks off the bleed. It doesn't go up into the abdomen, so he didn't bleed to death. And what makes that story so interesting is he actually totally recovered. The hip healed and the orthopedic doctor sent him home back to Delta Force with the instructions. Here's some Motrin. Take it three times a day for pain. Here's some Motrin, yeah. Okay? He's a soldier. He does, he does what he's told to do. That's and right. And about a month after this, <laughs> he's healed. He's working out in the field. And the same medic looks at him and goes, you look bad. You're very pale. I said, you you feel okay? Well, you know, I've been pooping black stools for the last three days, but, you know, I'm taking the Motrin three times a day like they told me to. So he, what he was doing was bleeding internally from the Motrin. As I heard right. you laughing, you knew that. Yeah. And bam, we put him in the hospital, had three units of blood transfused. And the reason I add that little bit is about two months later, he comes back and says, hey, doc, do me a favor and clear me to jump out of airplanes again. I need, you know, doc to clear me up as you know, an up jumper. And I went, not on your life, young man. You have 45 oh, yeah. years. You don't almost died twice in me. And he, he looks at me and he goes, I kind of thought you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, that's so, one but uh, I had thing that. that that type of guy does not want is to have a seizure in his 40s and have to be outed from the military oh, or have right. broken feet. They want to stay in, you know. I mean, what? Right? he's like, please, Doc. I know I broke my feet, but I can still shuffle. <laughs> yep. You know, it's 150 bucks extra a month if you're jumping out of airplanes. I want the money. Yeah. Okay. True. I get it's it. Won't do it. That's funny you say that. I'm going to tell you, my dad, in the, back in the day, he said, as a Green Beret, active duty, 24 7, 
it was two dollars and like 13 cents an hour is what he figured his daily rate was he's <laughs> he's like two dollars and 13 cents an hour i remember him joking around the house see i got to grow up inside of an armory that was stationed at a junior high here in utah so dad ran the armory had all <laughs> of the equipment in there and i just ran around like <laughs> where's all the mock ak's and whatnot you know playing around with it it's crazy such a good time yeah but you know you want the money you want the money? Let's take yeah, it. Yeah, jump pay. I, I'll tell you, this is a totally unrelated comment, but you made me remember. I ended up going to Iraq with the 82nd Airborne Division, and I was the senior flight surgeon there. And I had a number of younger doctors that are flight surgeons that are watching over our aviators, helicopter pilots. And they would come to me periodically and go, hey, you know, sir, you need to get me on one of these medevacs because I need to get my flight pay. 150 bucks a month, need to pay. Yeah, and I went, yeah. well, wait, 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 wait. Every time I get on a helicopter, they shoot at me. There's tracers going by every time I got to where I was sitting on my helmet. And I thought about it, and I said, this is dumb. We're in an active war, and I got girl, women. This was a woman that really made me think about it, asking to get on a medevac just to ride it so she could get her flight time and get her $150 a month. And that night, I sat down on road. She's still got bills going on back home. Well, yeah. And there's a doctor, by the way. She making wants the extra hundred. Okay, visit. okay. Well, I wrote a letter to the story. surgeon general. I got you. <laughs> I wrote a letter to the surgeon general. I said, "Hey, hey." It was Jim Peak at the time. I said, "Sir, you know, I'm I'm the senior doc in the fielder, and I got a problem. I got docs wanting to jump on birds just to get flight pay, and we're getting shot at every time we go out. And I don't have a lot of docs here. You need to waive the requirement of flight time right. in a war zone, right?" Know? And he goes. Oops, I really never thought about that. Very next day, order comes to Surgeon General. Flight hours are waived in a war zone. I did that. I saved her life. You did a good thing right there. You just totally helped everybody. (laughs) That's right. That was a very nice thing for you. Very nice empathy, Dr. Bob. (laughs) Common sense when you think about it. Now, check this out. Let's pull off a question that I have on the internet here. Okay, I'm going to say what it is. It's um, now... Right here. So Colton, he says from Instagram, I got a couple from different places. What do you recommend for training both medical and combat shooting? Is there something that you find that for combat shooting, something that you've learned in your training that you can pass on? Yeah, I've got a little story about that. When I first reported to Delta Force, they issued me a world-class 45 caliber weapon. And they said, you know, go shoot it, sight it in, see how it does. And so I said, all right, I'm going to go down to the range. And one of my medics heard me do that. He said, I'm going to come shoot with you. And so we both went out. And I, what are we going to shoot? I said, well, let's just shoot a standard 200-point qualification course. And you know, I'd been a SEAL before I was a doctor, so I knew how to shoot. Mm-hmm. And I was really tickled by the fact that this guy had been through the Delta Force Shooters course. And I fired a perfect 200 and he fired a 199. Of course. And I looked at him. I went, ha, ha, ha. He goes, all right, Doc, so you can shoot. Now, we're shooting at 25 yards, okay? And it's yeah. slow fire, and you take your time, and you aim every shot. He goes, let's go up to seven and a half yards and shoot at the same target, by the way, which is about the size of a dessert plate. I go, hell, anybody can hit it from this distance. He goes, no, no, we're going to do it different. We're going to fire 10 rounds from a holstered position in five seconds with a clip change. Oh, okay. So you go first. I don't think I've ever done that before. So I had a little timer. I go, beep. He draws his weapon, fires, bang, 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 drops clip, reloads, bang, 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 bang. I go, 
All right, 3.7 seconds. And I'm kind of laughing to myself. You know, you just fired 10 rounds with a clip change in 3.7 seconds. Let me go see if you hit anything. Yeah, right. And so the answer to your, your friend's question is this. I go up there and I look at the target and they have there's a 50 cent size hole all rounds touching. And I look at him, I go, how the heck did you do that? And here is the answer to your friend's question. He looks at me and he goes, Doc, I put a lot of rounds downrange. And that's the bottom line. You know, you'll learning how to aim, learning, you know, getting the right grip, learning how to trigger squeeze. All of it is relatively easy to learn quickly. But you want to be able to hit what you aim at every time you do it. Put a lot of range, rounds downrange. You can't learn it in an hour or a day. You know, Delta Force, for example, fires more rounds per year with less than a, well, with a, I can't give a number, but it's a very small a number of small amount in of, group. Yes. Small amount. They, yes. fire, they fire more bullets per year than the entire 18,000-man 82nd Airborne Division fires. Yeah, I believe that. And guess what? They always hit what they aim at. Oh, I bet you. They have their lanes just weaving in and out. That's you guys. That's just you guys. That's just you guys. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, I got some friends, I, I, you know, I'm not going to drop their, I mean, they're great dudes and they're Delta as well. And I've interviewed them in the past and they chased Bin Laden right on his heels, you know, just got stopped in Pakistan, couldn't go any further when he was over there. And they were like smoking teapot, you know, cigarette butts <laughs> were right there. Did you have any, any crazy close missions like you were just right there and or you just a little frustration well no not really i'm i'm really proud to say that as a navy seal for 12 years nobody ever shot at me in anger and i never shot at them in anger when i started getting shot at i was a, a doctor in the 82nd airborne division or delta force that was no fun at all but i can say it was it was kind of fun on the night that the delta force guys pulled saddam hussein out of his hole in iraq I was walking back from dinner. My phone goes off and uh, the guy next to me picks it up and goes, what? He goes, uh, stand by to receive DNA evidence on number one. We both look at each other and go, we got Saddam Hussein tonight. Oh, number one. <laughs> it was kind of yeah, cool. Right? That's cool. You were over there for that situation. Jeez. A lot of people don't know Saddam Hussein was the ace of spades in a deck of cards of 50. And every all the bad guys had were displayed on a card deck and right. the ace of spades was Saddam Hussein. And was, as they were killing off all the bad guys, they'd mark off these cards on a 50 card deck. And right. you know, number one, I have one that of deck of cards. I have that deck in my office. Oh, cool. I do. I do. It's all sealed up. I just thought I'm a collector, whether it's baseball cards or basketball cards. And I saw those cards. Yep. I was like, you're in my collection forever. You got a collector's item there. Absolutely. No question about it. Yeah, no question. And the top card is the Ace of Spades on the bottom. So in the clear pack, it's Sodom. It is. Yeah, exactly right. Yes, yes, yes. Now, Jen asks a question off of Facebook. She says, what is the most MacGyver item that you had to use that was unauthorized to save someone's life? You don't have a scalpel. Maybe a toothpick. You know, you know. Quite honestly, as a doctor, almost anything you use is authorized. You know, if I <laughs> grab it and I use it, it's authorized. I guess that's what. Yeah, just what's the most unique thing you had to use in a in a situation? 
You're like, I got to plug this hole or I got to. All right. I do have an answer to that question. It's a fascinating story. And it's a chapter in my book, Six Days of Impossible. Navy SEAL. No, it's not really. It's a doctor book I wrote. But there is a an event when I'm in Iraq and I get a call at two o'clock in the morning that an enemy combatant is en route to my clinic for an ambulance transfer. And he's He's been shot multiple times in the chest. He's uh, bled most of his blood out, but he's conscious and talking to us. And he shows up in our clinic. And the previous doctors had put a subclavian IV in and put a femoral IV in. Both of them had come out. You know, his arm was amputated and held on by a tourniquet. And, you know, I'm going, I, you know, how are we going to save this guy? But it's our job as Americans, you know, to save anybody, to render American aid. or other. Once they become a patient. Right. And the problem was I had a pediatrician with me and I said, hey, he's lost so much blood. I can't get a vein. You go find a vein. You can put a vein in a baby's scalp, put a vein in this guy. He couldn't do it. Yeah. And so I'm thinking to myself, what else do I have? And I sent my medic, quick run, get my advanced trauma life support book, put it between his legs, because I'm going to cut down on his ankle, find a vein, and do something I've only trained in animals on, and do do a venous cut down. And we did that. We cut his ankle, we found the vein, we threaded an IV in it, we tied it off, turned on the fluids, and it worked. And I went, oh my God, I actually did it on a human being. You know, and I'm a family practice doctor. Surgeon, which you mentioned, is a, a title, not not a professional okay. thing I do for a living. But that day, I was kind of a surgeon. Yeah. And by the way, that that young pediatrician went on the medevac with him right through the middle of bad guy country, got him to the surgeons, and he lived. He doesn't have his right arm anymore, but he lived. Yeah, that's the main part is that he did. And and I'm sure that uh, do you stay in contact with any of these uh, patients that you've had to work with? You know, do any of them ever reach out to you and say, thanks, Doc? Well, we love you so much. And I would have been. Oh, not <laughs> him. Yeah, no, no. I mean, like, <laughs> I guess not that makes friend. sense. Yeah, But I will tell you that the young captain that did that very heroic middle of the night ambulance transfer through bad guy country did it because it was faster than taking the safer route. And he'll always be my hero. And he was a young 03 captain at the time. And he's just retired as a full bird colonel. Though, so, oh, wow. And, you know, for the record, Colonel Craig Dobson, thank you for your service to the United States Army Medical Corps. Yeah, thank you, Colonel Craig Dobson. We'll say that one more time out there. That's awesome. There you go. Okay. Now, here we go. This is from a young man. I know this one. It's from Instagram. His name is Mark, and he is in the guard. So he's an army, wants to go SF. And he says, good habits to implement into my life to set me up for success in my endeavors. Can you give someone like him? And he, this guy is ripped, right? I mean, he works out all the time. I see his posts, and he's always flexing his back muscles and trying to get his pecs to move all by themselves. So what do you got for someone like that? Mark, run more. Being able to um, climb up a rope barehanded or to push, you know, 250 pounds until you hurt, injure your shoulder, it's kind of fun in a peacetime setting. But when you go to, a, to go to any of the Special Operations Forces, Navy, SEALs, Delta, it's all about endurance. And it, that's the key to success. Swim more, run more, get rid of some of that excess bulk because it doesn't do you any good on a 10-mile run. Hmm. 
Well, there you go, Mark. And I'm just going to say, you know, I, I think he's a great dude. And he's he's like, when you see him, it's like, hey, that's who we want. But you're just telling him to just maybe <laughs> lean up a little more and get into that endurance running marathon. And I'll say again, my dad growing up watching him, he would run the St. George, Utah Marathon in the desert, you know, endurance running. That's a constant thing. He'd go out and run with a rucksack six miles about once or twice a week. In addition to just regular runs that he'd go out on, I'd ride my bike next to him. And he'd have airmen at Hill Air Force Base. You need a ride with his rucksack. And he's like, I'm good. <laughs> how he is, you know? <laughs> but he's he like, I got this. Mark probably weighs 220, and at least 20 of it he doesn't need. So. Yeah, I think Mark is five foot five. And I think he comes in oh. as, I think he bulks up to try to make up for it. You know, I'll tell you, if he can't run a five minute mile, averaging seven minutes a mile, then he's carrying too much weight around. Okay, you got that, Mark? I know you're going to listen to this on soft rep. I'm okay. stoked for that. Go get it. <laughs> yeah, get it, bro. I want you to be the SF guy you, you're training for. Let me see. What else do we have here? Have you? Oh, that's another question. So, again, it's another. Have you ever had to improvise a tool in the field? If so, how'd you use it? Well, that's a relatively common problem. You don't, you don't have the right size needle. You don't have the right type of IV. You don't have the right medications. You know, tourniquets are really common improvised. You, know, you grab a stick, you grab some cloth, you wrap it around a leg and you tighten it down. Tourniquets are probably one of the more common of the improvised, you know, medical emergency devices. Because it could be torn from something or just, you know, taken off of clothing or it's a... Yeah. Right. It could be a bandana. It could be sure. just something that could tighten a shoelace. Right. That would be improvising. Bandana and a stick. You got it. Exactly. Right. Or you could say, like, if you had to do a tracheotomy on someone, you could probably use like a pen to put into there to help with the airflow or something. I don't know. I'm not the doc. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, they did that on the MASH show. Radar did that-, that on MASH, but you uh, still had to make the cut, you know. Still have to make the cut. Chop, chop the pen off. It would work just fine. But as far as personally, you know, yeah. not really. Now, did you play any sports in high school? Were you on the track team or baseball team? I was a lacrosse player and a wrestler. Interestingly, both of which have been proven to be very good choices for sports if you want to become a Navy SEAL. Don't know why. It's something about both the individual nature of those sports. And ice hockey is another one that seemed to do very, very well from, you know, being able to push yourself individually and still be part of a team. Sure. Um, but, I, you know, I loved lacrosse. I played lacrosse high school, college, and even after I went to the SEAL teams, I was on club lacrosse. Sure. You just love – did you keep wrestling even into the SEALs? Did you ever get into these, like, little baby fight clubs they'd have in the culture hall or anything like that where they're like, hey, come on. Uh, no, I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was a horrible wrestler. I was a horrible wrestler, only won, won one match in high school, and that was by accident. <laughs> <laughs> he jumped from the top rope, right? <laughs> yeah. WWE. Like, I thought he had me pinned, but I had him pinned. And, yeah, I went, oh, it was, it, was, it was fun. Oh, that's awesome. Were you ever in the scouts? So I work with the scouts all the time. There's this troop here that we work with, and, you know, the young men are chasing eagles. Proud to say that I was an eagle scout at 14 years old, Order the <laughs> Arrow and Brotherhood. Garden Country Award and every other badge and beat I could get. 50-mile hike at Philmont Scout Ranch. One-mile oh, batch in Maine. 
Sure. We just had we just had scouts come back from Philmont last year. Yeah, I loved Philmont. It was just a absolutely amazing place for a young man to have some independent opportunities to be on their own and test yes. themselves and lead a troop of chased by bears boys into the men into the <laughs> become men and like change well, they got a klondike this weekend they're going to go uh, do the cold weather survival here in the utah mountains in the klondike yeah huge fan of the scouts and if there are any young men out there listening it's also a tremendous preparation for all of the military services yes it is and uh we've got you know a really good troop here and uh, that's good to hear that you put that out there and i just wanted to hear them if they listen to this know that you know it's a positive influence and also if you're going to enlist and you have that eagle, it typically gives you an extra stripe on that enlistment. So, you know, it's like, hey, it's an added added little value bonus there. Yep. Take it very seriously, guys. <laughs> so you retired from being a physician in 2006. Is that what I understand? Are you still practicing? Or Correct. How's that well, this is, you missed a very cool part of this story. You know, Tell I, me. I would just made commander in the SEAL teams when I took a scholarship to become an Army doctor and had to start over again as a second lieutenant. So I went from Navy 05 SEAL to Army second lieutenant medical student to go to Wake Forest University on a fully paid ride. Thank you very much, United States Army. You know, I would have stayed in the Navy, but the Navy offered me a three-year scholarship and the Army offered a four. And at that time, at 36 years old, going to medical school, I had two kids. And that's that's no cheap decision. So I ended up starting all over again, working my way back up at Fort Bragg in multiple assignments to full bird colonel by 2006 and was able to retire and set up private practice in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. But it was a challenge. What an amazing... 01 to 05, back to 01, back to 06. Yeah, I mean, you go, because an 05 is a commander. Is that what I'm understanding for the Navy? Right, yeah, exactly. And Matter of fact, the only picture I have of me in a commander's uniform was my dress whites with my commander's hat with scrambled eggs on the bill, holding my commissioning certificate in the Army as a second lieutenant. Because that, that was the is, only time I wore it was to get sworn yeah, in. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so you had, and then you, so you started out as, as a second lieutenant, which is a butter bar or the yellow bar, and then you go up to the silver right? first, and and then you got out as a colonel. But if you would have compressed that, you should be Admiral General, sir? <laughs> <laughs> something like that absolutely dude sir dude that's, i love to say that now dr commander colonel bob you know which one do you, you know have? you know that's awesome now you know one thing that has been pushed on soft rep is like you know getting outside for mental health you know there's always the question you know what can we say to somebody that has ptsd or issues that they've always you know from dealing with combat stress or just the military in general or life in general car accidents even traumatic injuries you know i snowboard you know do you have a hobby is there something that you choose to do mental health outside get some oxygen what do you still do to maintain that i think probably i have the best hobby for mental health that there is i fish i fly fish i salmon fish in alaska I, i lake fish and you know that's you know quiet time in nature's presence is probably the most relaxing hobby anybody could choose yeah and uh that's Again, why I choose snowboarding as well. Even on the lift with my wife, we're just quiet. And you just hear and see the crystals of the snow and breathe in the cold air and you're just alive. (laughs) All these emotions going through you. you 
yeah, nature, definitely. There's a number of veterans programs out there for those that are dealing with the stresses of having served in combat, one of which is Outward Bound that offers free trips into nature for veterans. So if there's any veterans listening going, what? Yep, it's free. Give them a call, Outward Bound. Yeah, Outward Bound. That's awesome. And, you know, uh, with Brandon on SoftRep, he's taken veterans, you know, to Chamonix, France, where he took hard-charging snowboarders and skiers and took them on an experience of, you know, heli-skiing and heli-boarding where, you know, they made a movie about it, and it's called Big Mountain Heroes. And you just see these veterans just, you know, enjoying the outdoorness, nature. Of course. Yes, yep. sir. Outdoors is is about as therapeutic as it gets. Yeah, thrills before pills. I understand that some of those things have places in people's lives, you know, with extreme pain and whatnot to mitigate that. Do you find that there's also any other remedies out there? Like, you know, uh, what about medicinal cannabis? What's your thoughts on that with people? Are you for that? Like, you know, is there a pl- time and place? So I don't know how to answer it because I I entered the military to go to the Naval Academy at 17 years old and uh, really never had a chance to try it personally. Oh, I see. When I filled out my security set questionnaire, the the, uh, investigative agent goes, you sure you want to put that answer down? Because we're going to do a lie detector test. You know, like (laughs) everybody's tried it. No, sorry. Sorry, never did. But I've seen people that have been very, very sick, particularly young people from the overuse of marijuana. But by the same token, I've seen older folks that have had some tremendous benefits, some of my cancer patients, that it, it, it does help with pain and it helps being able to sleep because you can't sleep, you can't heal. Now that there's the gummy everything's, you know, yeah, you, right. you can get CBDs yeah. and you can get the edible marijuanas that are be, you know, becoming more and more legal in more and more states to the point where very soon it'll be, be there for everybody. So I sure. I can't think of anything really bad, you know, again, it, with the exception of significant overuse. Right, and abuse of anything too, right? It's yeah. true, overuse. Of anything. 100%. Yeah. yeah, except for snowboarding and fly fishing. <laughs> you can never do too much of those things. <laughs> So uh, everywhere you go, do you have a spotlight shining on you because you're so awesome? No, I'm an old gray-haired guy, you know. I just get what I'm doing done. I will put a plug in here, though, for something exciting. I'm in Mexico right now. What I consider a medical mission of some historical significance, there were 13 men in our our, uh, SEAL Hell Week winter class that graduated, and there are only nine of us left alive. And four of those nine are coming here to Mexico to help one of our classmates reverse his dementia. There is a new treatment that is working. I'm watching it happen before my very eyes. And this will be a conversation in a month or two from now where we're going to have a conversation just about this new technology that was developed in India, came to Mexico, and will be in the United States soon. But it's actually proving to be able to reverse dementia. That's wonderful. And that should make you say, wow. Yeah, it is. It's a huge thing. Dementia. And would that fall in with uh, also like some Alzheimer's patients as well, you know, or just dementia? Okay. So they could be grouped together. Dementia is part of Alzheimer's, huh? Right. Well, Alzheimer's is one of the dementias, but is one you know, them. this is 
In my classmate's case, it's traumatic brain injury from, you know, multiple jumping out of airplanes and banging his head. And he was a commanding officer of a SEAL team in Afghanistan as his last duty. Right. And it's the same thing the football players are getting and rugby players are getting. CTEs, bang, bang, I think is what it's called. Head. We hear him called CTEs and whatnot. CTE is, is another one of the causes of dementia. Yes. And it's it. This company in Mexico here has com- almost completely reversed international rugby stars with, you know, complete dementia and disability. That's Brought awesome. them back again. That's that's awesome. So we'll have a long talk about that in the future. Plant that seed. Yeah, use everything you have in your head to do that. <laughs> you do that. My money's on you. If you're the horse in the race, I got all my money on you. So you do the best you can do because that's the scouting <laughs> way. Yes, sir. You know it anytime. You know, and, uh, you know, I just want to say that, you know, we have had some time talking today. And is there any book or anything that you would like to tell me or tell us about? I know you have like three books. You want to tell me what those are real quick? Well, I'll tell you the first one real quick, which yes. is we've already mentioned twice. It's The Six Days of Impossible, Navy Seal Hell Week, A Doctor Looks Back. That book is a true story of the four men that are down here in Mexico, of the, you know, 13 of us that, that made it through Hell Week you know, training together. And mm-hmm. that was a labor of love, and it's a true story. The other true story I just published last year is called Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey. And it's about my that. 35 years of medicine. And it tells that story of doing the Venus cut down in Iraq and then being my time at Delta Force. But it begins as a medical student and a resident and a young doctor. And it kind of walks you through, you know, I delivered babies. I did my own C-sections. You know, it gives you a f- up close and personal look at what it's like to work as hard as you got to do to become an MD. So for people that want to be doctors, do it. And who can also run and carry a rucksack and do a PLF and have empathy <laughs> for the enemy wounded. And all, you have switches. All the, all the military doctors can do that, you know. You have so many switches that you can control, sir. Like you are able to – You, the first, second, third, fourth walls don't even exist with you. I just want to let you know I'm just – I'm proud of you. <laughs> so well, Thank you for that, Ben. Yes. Equally proud of all the doctors and men and women I've served with over the years. Yeah, I mean. And I, and I got to say I, this, as sort of almost as a closing comment. Yeah, please. Navy SEAL training creates a brotherhood that is doesn't exist many other places in the world. And I went through SEAL training 45 years ago, and we all, in our, the, the surviving nine members of our class, all know where each other are, are all here rooted are all rooting for what we're doing here. And can you imagine being able to put an email out and saying, I need three more guys to come to Mexico to help out our classmate reverse right. his dementia. And without hesitation, there's four of us. Everybody shows up. And we're doing it. That's a brotherhood that is rare as hen's teeth. And I'm quite in awe of having friends of that, at that level. You know, it is. So what I would imagine that it, it is. You know, myself, just growing up with that family, that community, I just, uh, I wouldn't see it another way, you know, and that's a great closing piece to say right there. And, and again, I'm really happy to have gotten to interview with you and I would like to reach out to you more and have you more on the show as, uh, you know, maybe even a featured guest, more questions coming in and we'll just put it out there on soft rep radio. And again, Dr. Bob Adams, I'm grateful to have you on the show and, 
thanks a lot for being on the show. You're awesome. You've done good, Rod. Thank you for taking the time. You're very welcome. And enjoy Mexico. talk again. And many prayers and positive vibes to your friend. Blessings to you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio.